So I want to take a moment now to thank the Digital Hub because they are the main sponsors for this season of InspireFest, the podcast. The Digital Hub is in the Liberties in the heart of Dublin city. It's a collaborative space and it's home to lots of technology and digital media companies. But it's more than just an office. My name is Sinead Dalton. I'm founder of Mashup Media. We are a digital content agency and we specialise in video content. We've been here for the last five years and we love it here. It's a perfect environment for us. It's really creative and there's great collaboration between the different companies that work here. You can find out more about Sinead and lots of other innovators at thedigitalhub.com. Now, back to the show. Hi everyone and welcome to InspireFest, the podcast. In this episode, we get to meet Tracy Chow. Tracy is an entrepreneur, she's a software engineer, and she's a diversity advocate who's gone about things in a very clever way. Tracy was an engineer and tech lead at Pinterest, that wonderful website, and she also worked at Cora as one of its early engineers. But alongside being a really good engineer, Tracy is very well known for her efforts to promote diversity in tech. And back in 2013, Tracy helped to kickstart a wave of, I suppose, companies reflecting a bit more on gender diversity and being a bit more open about their gender diversity data, which I think changed a lot of perspectives in the tech industry and in Silicon Valley. Tracy has been named in the Forbes Tech 30 Under 30. She was named that in 2014. So Tracy talked to us a little bit about her own career, you know, and how she became an engineer and also how she used those skills to really shine a light on one of the big issues in tech at the moment, gender diversity. So here's our backstage interview with Tracy. My name is Tracy Chow and I'm a software engineer. So Tracy, can you tell us a little bit about your journey into becoming a computer scientist? Yes, my journey. So some people would say I had a very um, uh, obvious path into software engineering. I grew up in the Bay Area. Both of my parents are software engineers, have PhDs in computer science. So I went to high school in Mountain View, home of Google. Um, I went to school for, for university at Stanford also right nearby and uh, right where all the tech companies are. Um, but I would say actually, despite everything being stacked in my favor, it was harder than I thought it would be. Um, so a lot of those challenges around gender that people talk about now, I was experiencing them without necessarily having the words to describe all of that, just feeling a little bit off, feeling like I didn't quite belong. And so even all through college, I doubted whether or not I belonged there. 
when I was graduating from university, I was deciding what I wanted to do, and I was considering things as varied as marketing and operations research, as well as software engineering. And it was really quite towards the end of my soul searching and looking at all different opportunities that I was convinced to take on a job as a software engineer at a small startup. And uh, that was transformative, I would say. <laughs> when I actually started working there at this very early stage startup, where we we're building something essentially from the ground up that I started to see how amazing it is to be a part of building something and uh, something that scales so easily. And it was really at that first startup that I worked at where I was a software engineer in building that I came to really love that whole field. Um, and so I've been a software engineer ever since, but uh, it didn't trace back all the way to my childhood as some people might think it would. And tell us about working at Pinterest as well, because uh, you, you started off at Pinterest. I think you were the, the earliest people in there. Is that right? Yeah. So I joined Pinterest when it was somewhere between 10 and 15 people. There's a number of us that joined right around the same time. And I left when it was about a thousand people. So I got to see that sort of rocket ship ride that a lot of people talk about in Silicon Valley. And it was incredible. Um, one of the the very unique things I thought about joining Pinterest early on uh, was it was actually the first place where I felt I was treated as an engineer and not a female engineer. And some of it was just coming in. We had so much work to do that my teammates looked at me and just said, all right, let's get going. Like, <laughs> We need engineers. You seem to be a good engineer. Like, Let's just get building. And so there was not that question of, oh, you're a woman. Do we need to discount your abilities or any of that? We just started building. And it was really amazing to be on the ground floor of a company that then grew so quickly and to be to have been a part of not just scaling the engineering and the technical side but scaling the team building and you really opened up the conversations about diversity in technology as well um, with a medium post that you published in 2013 i think mm, is that correct right. so tell us about that I can't take too much credit for opening up these conversations around diversity. There are many people who have been speaking on this issue for decades even. Um, I wrote this Medium post in 2013 that was calling specifically for the tech industry to start releasing diversity data. And uh, it came out of some personal experience where I would look at all the startups around me. So being in the startup ecosystem, I also had friends at various other startups. And it was one of the things that I would do whenever I met people at different startups, I'd ask how many female engineers they had. So. In the back of my mind, I was keeping tabs already, um, and sometimes I would go look at different companies' team pages. So it's often a thing for small startups to publish their entire teams on their about pages. So I'd sometimes go look and see how many female engineers they had these different companies. But I realized that in a larger way, the big companies were never tracking their data or talking about their data. And so I would hear companies proudly proclaimed that they were going to the Grace Hopper conference and supporting all these female engineers to go, or they had very generous maternity leave policies, or they'd, all, they'd done all these specific things to help encourage diversity. Uh, and often they meant diversity to be gender diversity, so not in a, in a very intersectional way. Um, but people would talk a lot about what they were doing, but never talk about the success of their efforts. Um, and when I thought about trying to bring suggestions to my team at Pinterest about what we could do, it was very hard to argue that we should do any of these things that other companies said they were doing because there were no success metrics. There was no data about diversity and there was no data about what things were moving. And so my Medium post was just calling out a little bit of that hypocrisy in such a data-driven industry or everything we do with product development is data-driven, everything is A-B tested, so you test this variant of blue and that variant of blue and see which one converts better. Uh, any feature launches were heavily instrumented. Everything is so data-driven except the workforce. 
and it felt like such a critical component of what we were building, the people who were working on it. Um, and so that Medium post, I think, just triggered something in the community. It tapped into an energy, I think, that was already there. There were starting to be more people who wanted to do something about diversity but didn't know what to do. And here was a very concrete, easy action for them to take, especially in the smaller companies. They could just look around at their engineering teams and count up the number of total engineers, the number of female engineers, and submit that to a database. And then we could start to build that benchmark across industry. And so it was a very easy thing for individuals to do that they could feel was concretely positive and helping the industry move forward in some small way. Um, and from there, I think started to, to really snowball. How clever to make it an issue of you know data and metrics, these things that the technology industry really understands, as you say, but they weren't they weren't kind of turning that inwards on on looking at the workforce. It's amazing. Yeah, it was very natural to me, I think just because I am an engineer and every product I worked on, I had to instrument. <laughs> so everything I worked on, we were thinking about what are the data points we're collecting. Um, I built data infrastructure at Quora and at Pinterest. So I was just wired to think in that way. And I think it's very natural, like that's the language of the industry and being someone who's working in it, it just felt like the right language to be using. Um, and so there had been people who had been calling for the release of diversity data in the past, um, but oftentimes those were people that weren't within the industry. And so what they were calling for was completely reasonable, but I think there's um, some cachet I had from being an engineer within the industry and I think some of my credentials of having grown up and, and worked in Silicon Valley and um, you know having attended Stanford just like right there in the heart of Silicon Valley helped um, to give more credibility to my call to action. And so that call to action that that literally triggered like an avalanche of people you know and including the, the really heavy hitters releasing their diversity data. Mm-hmm. Were you surprised by that reaction? I was surprised. Uh, I didn't think that people would actually release their data because I know the reasons why people didn't want to release the data in the first place. And some of it is very reasonable uh, from certain perspectives. Like there's the legal risk. Uh, if you publish this data about your workforce, like does that open you up to discrimination lawsuits? Like all of that is uh, the sort of thing that the lawyers will warn you against. And on the recruiting front, it's very difficult to know. Like there's, I think, a little bit of this cold start problem. Like no one wanted to be the first one to release their data because they didn't know if they were going to be worse than average or better but there was no average established yet but if it turned out that other people released their data and were better then you would look bad and be hard to recruit more people um, to build a diverse team and then that could hinder your efforts to try to become more diverse so there's a lot of things that made it difficult for companies to move forward and i think it had to be a collective effort and once more companies are releasing their data it became the norm so that was it was pretty cool to see it happen i didn't expect it to and it was a very pleasant surprise when it did Some people wonder if this matters, or if it matters enough for us to invest any effort in diversity. My response is that it is kind of just the right thing to do, to build an industry that's diverse and inclusive of people from all backgrounds, but it's also the smart thing to do. The World Economic Forum frames it as three distinct arguments. First, the diversity case, second, the consumer case, and third, the talent case. In the context of innovation work, research demonstrates that diverse teams are more creative, more diligent and thoughtful, and most importantly for the business case, drive better financial returns. And it's not just correlation. Controlled experiments show that having diversity on teams causes them to be stronger. It's impossible to do causal analysis on firms and industry, but the data there is still very compelling. 
A report released last year, in 2016, studying nearly 22,000 publicly traded companies across 91 countries showed that an increase in the share of women in top management from 0 to 30% was associated with a 15% rise in profitability. From the McKinsey report, Diversity Matters, that came out in 2015, there is an even stronger finding in support of racial diversity. Companies in the top quartile for racial and ethnic diversity are 35% more likely to have financial returns above their respective national industry means. There's a pretty clear business case for diversity here. Second is the consumer case. For the tech industry, we're building products for everyone. The quality, relevance, and impact of these products and services can only be improved by having the people who are building them be demographically representative of the people who are using them. Here's a glaring example of an oversight that probably would have been prevented by having some more gender diversity on the team. Apple launched HealthKit in iOS 8 as a comprehensive act to track nearly everything you can think of tracking, blood alcohol, content, inhaler usage, sodium intake, except somehow they missed period tracking. Perhaps one of the most obvious use cases of quantified self and one that affects nearly half the global population and somehow overlooked. The last major argument for diversity as a strategic and competitive advantage is in talent and hiring. The Bureau of Labor Statistics projects that by 2020, there will be a shortfall of 1 million workers to fill open computer science jobs. The tech industry severely underutilizes the talent that exists in our economy with its systemic exclusion of certain sectors of the population. It seems obvious that we should, say, tap into those parts of the population. Talent is equally distributed. Opportunity is not. And what have you been involved in since to help encourage that transparency about diversity in the technology industry and to improve diversity? The main thing I've been involved with recently is Project Include. So I co-founded this organization last year with seven other women in technology, um, one of whom was Ellen Powell, had a very famous court case against Kleiner Perkins, Frida Kapor-Klein, who's been speaking on these issues for literally decades. Uh, and we got together because we wanted to talk about solutions. Um, what we were seeing was that many people in industry were talking about the problems, and it was important to start establishing that there was a problem that needed to be addressed, um, but there wasn't enough movement towards solutions. We wanted to think about what we could do to help drive the industry towards solutions. Some of it was actually just writing down everything that we thought to be good, uh, that we know based on the, the information we have at this point, we know that to be the best practice. And acknowledging that best practices will shift over time as we try more things and understand what works and what doesn't work, but we wanted to start collating these resources because there, there has been quite a bit of research out there, um, but for someone who's just getting started with diversity and inclusion, it can be very overwhelming to know where to start, and we wanted to give people a little bit of that primer. Here's how to even think about strategically approaching diversity and inclusion, and then here are all the different steps you can take, and we wanted to make sure we were tagging the recommendations with the size of company that they're relevant to and, and all that, so just making it very actionable for companies to start making progress towards diversity and inclusion. So we, we launched Project Include last year, and at first it was just this handbook of resources. Uh, because the response was so positive, we've started to move a little bit more programmatic. And so we had, uh, we just wrapped up our first cohort of Startup Include, where we had um, a number of companies, like nine or 10 companies, where we worked with their chief executives and in some cases their diversity officers on instrumenting diversity and inclusion. 
So not just understanding, for example, the demographics, but also how engagement differs by different demographics, um, sense of belonging, and some of these softer things that are getting at inclusion. And then work with these companies to actually implement some of the recommendations that we've put out in Project Include, and then worked with them to track if there have been any changes in their companies after they try these different recommendations. And so we're trying to put things into practice and it's good for the companies to have a cohort. They can talk to others in that cohort to see how things are going, have a sense of camaraderie as well. They have people, they have access to Project Include and some of us who have more experience with the research and the academic side of things. And uh, one thing that's also really great about having these companies all collect their data together is that they don't actually have to individually release their data to help build a benchmark. And so um, as our first cohort has come together, we've been able to aggregate stats across all of them, and we'll be releasing that data pretty soon. And it's nice that we'll now have really fine-grained benchmarks on these different dimensions of diversity and inclusivity. But no individual companies have to put all their data out there, which is particularly hard for startups because if you start to cut by demographics in very small companies, that becomes identifying information. So you need to start aggregating in order to get interesting patterns. So Tracy, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the quality of the data. I mean, some of the things that you might be looking for in diversity might be quite hidden away in the data. How do you overcome that problem? Right, so one thing you'll probably see is that a lot of the diversity data reports that have come out so far have been cut along gender and race lines because those are things that companies are already collecting in their HR databases. There are other many, uh, there are many other dimensions of identity which are not necessarily obvious or need to be self-identified. And sometimes companies don't actually want to collect that data because it can be a risk or liability. I think there are a few ways to get around this. I think one is actually working with third parties to collect that data. Um, And so this approach is having a trusted third party be the one to collect all the response data as well as the demographic data. The companies can just see aggregated views. You can have all sorts of policies around those aggregated views, like don't show the data unless there are at least five people that belong in this category so you don't accidentally out people. I think there may be ways in the future with clever software design where we can have um, information hidden and only released conditionally. Um, But I think there's still a lot of innovation to be done around good collection of data. Um, One of the things I wanted to ask you about was, I mean, I I know from from sort of looking at at online that that you started to code very early, probably because of the the house you grew up in and the environment you grew up in. and I know in Ireland, we've had a lot of success with an organization called Coder Dojo, mm-hmm. which is uh, free computer clubs, basically, for kids. It started in Ireland and it's mm-hmm. scaled around the world. Oh, yeah, and, and another kind of within that, one of the successes has been Coder Dojo Girls, mm-hmm. which is kind of, you know, uh, getting groups of girls together to learn how to code. And they do it in a very friendly kind of way. And that's now scaled worldwide. Do you think it's really important for kids to learn how to code? Do you think that's going to do you think that's going to improve diversity issues over the, the coming generations, if kids kind of get in early and all they're all in classes together learning to code, is that going to help, do you think? I think it does because it starts to take away from this notion that only boys code. If everyone is coding, then it no longer becomes a gendered thing and it becomes normal for girls or people from different backgrounds to even be exposed to this idea that they could be doing these things early, helps them to see themselves doing that in the future. And I don't think it's important that everybody becomes a coder professionally Um, and sometimes I will get asked a question about is coding the new literacy Uh, and I don't necessarily think everyone needs to become a software engineer let's say but I do think there is some something to that idea of 
coding being this literacy and understanding how the world works. Like everybody learns how to read and write and do basic arithmetic. That doesn't mean that everybody is a professional writer or mathematician or accountant or whatever it is. Um, I think understanding how software works, how code works, it's instructions for computers. I can execute those instructions very correctly, very quickly. And that software now permeates so many aspects of our daily lives. I think that kind of understanding is very important. And it also means that more people can be involved in brainstorming the ways that software can be helpful to solving problems that we have, even if they're not necessarily the ones that are writing that exact software. They just have that way of thinking and uh, they can start to pull in much more diverse sets of people into the idea of like building software. For a long time, maybe people didn't understand that software engineering is about building things because it's in the digital realm. For mechanical engineers or product engineers, it's a little bit more obvious, like oh, or a civil engineer, you can see the supports for a bridge start to go up and you can see the bridge actually be constructed, then it's completed and, and cars can drive across it. Or you're creating a building and you can see like the frame of the building going up and all the architecture going into it. But for software, it's harder to see like, what's that architecture behind it and all the pieces that go into like all the wiring, the plumbing. It's harder to see that, but when you do see the pieces that go in, like these lines of code actually create this button on the screen, which interacts with me in this way, that is really powerful. It's like you could build something really cool. And I had this revelation a couple of times. It took a few times for me to really get it. And I mentioned um, working at this very small startup when I first came out of school was very eye-opening because we were building a product from the ground up. It was like, this thing wouldn't exist if we didn't work on it. Uh, that was a very big revelation, but there are smaller instances of this even earlier for me when I interned at places like Google and Facebook and saw these were products that I was using and I, if I didn't like something about it or wanted to improve it, I could actually go in and change the functionality on Facebook and it's something that I could use and my friends could use and it's a product that my friends did all use uh, in college. So it's very powerful to, to feel like you get to be a part of creation and um, not just creating anything but creating something that people use. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That mindset going from consumer to creator is, mm -hmm. is very important. And um, finally, one of the things we're asking everybody is mm -hmm. about risks and opportunities, I suppose. So, I mean, what do you see as the main risks of in, into the future of diversity in, in tech? I think one of the biggest risks about the lack of diversity in tech and especially frontier tech, so some of these newer things that are coming out like augmented reality, virtual reality, AI, autonomous vehicles, um, is that we're not building in all the perspectives that we need to. And some of these things are only going to come up in very insidious ways that we're not going to know what we've overlooked. Some examples from other parts of engineering, for example, like for seatbelts and cars, originally they were all designed for male bodies, and so they didn't actually work on women and children. Uh, I think we're going to have those sorts of oversights if we don't have diversity in the building of software. And there are some examples that have already come up um, and when Apple launched HealthKit with iOS 8, and you can track everything about your health and your body. They didn't have period tracking which is something that women have been tracking for a very, very long time, maybe millennia. And it's something that is very relevant still to half the global population. And HealthKit didn't have period tracking. And there are other examples around, let's say, harassment um, online. So a lot of these platforms have deprioritized building anti-spam, anti-harassment tools, I think because the people who are building these platforms don't necessarily receive all that abuse and harassment. Um, and without all the perspectives of people who are using these products. Uh, I think it's very easy to overlook these different cases. I don't even want to call them edge cases because some of them are just very standard cases. They're just not encountered by the people who are currently the builders of technology.
What opportunities lie in increasing diversity in tech? Is it just the corollary of, of what you've of the risks? I think it means that we can solve problems in totally new ways um, and solve problems that we've never even thought about solving with technology if we have more people equipped with this mindset from what is cool about software and what is cool about technology so i guess it is a little bit that flip side of what's a lack of diversity but it's kind of unbounded in all the cool things we can do with technology and the more people we have thinking in that way and being able to build with technology the more powerful we will all be um, and the more we can advance as humanity and society the more that we're including everyone tracy chad thank you so much for joining us today well thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure So that was Tracy, and that was episode four of Inspire Fest, the podcast. And it's so much fun to relive these interviews that we did over those couple of days in the podcast room because we just got to talk to so many inspiring people. And if you've missed any of them in the previous episodes, people like Raju Narasetti, people like Sinead Burke, like Kelly Hoey, Sue Black, Arlen Hamilton, be sure to go back and check them out because they're well worth listening to. I may be biased, but they're well worth listening to. So now, in the next episode, we get to meet Anna Matronic. This was so exciting because Anna is a, she's a huge name. I mean, you know, you know her from her work with Scissor Sisters, but she's also written some really interesting stuff about robotics and the future of robotics. So make sure you don't miss that one. Right, so this is the point where I'm going to ask you a favour to just spread the word about InspireFest, the podcast. There's so many amazing speakers together in one place at InspireFest and quite often these voices aren't the ones you always hear in science and tech and design and the arts. So even if you've heard them at InspireFest, you'll get a bit extra from the podcast. So make sure you tell everybody you know to listen in, share it on social media, review us on iTunes and just get the word out there so more people can hear these amazing and inspiring voices. If you want to find out more about InspireFest, be sure to check out InspireFest.com. This episode was produced by Bureau. I've been Claire O'Connell. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget, folks, that InspireFest 2018 is on June the 21st and 22nd in the Borgosh Energy Theatre in Dublin. So do go along to InspireFest.com and check out the speakers, book your tickets and come along because you won't regret a minute of it. There are not only the super speakers on stage, but also wonderful people go to InspireFest and there's a lot of events and it's a huge amount of fun. So come along. Just incredible to see so many incredible women doing so many different things in tech. I mean, I've only entered tech 18 months ago. So to be able to see people that look like me um, uh, doing incredible things has, has been awesome.